0: Hello, and welcome to season three of the E3 podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to the podcast. I'm actually excited today. Uh, some of the ladies from Maine Passive House are going to flip the script. They're in charge today. They get to ask me whatever they want. So welcome, Anna and Kiona. Introduce yourselves, tell us who you are, what Maine Passive House is, and uh, then you can get rolling on what you'd like to ask me.
1: We're taking it over. Um, My name's Anna. (laughs) Remember this voice because I know that's challenging in a podcast. Um, I work for Maine Passive. I've been there for about four years. We build airtight, super insulated structures to the Passive House standard. Um, And I'll let Kiona introduce herself, but Emily is the bridge between myself
2: and Kiona. (laughs) Hi everyone, I'm Kiona. I started working for Maine Passive House a couple of months ago. Before that, I was at a different company. Um, And I work with Anna every day. (laughs) She's (laughs) awesome to work with. And we're just having a really good time building our passive houses.
1: Yeah, so, so Kiona was on Emily's podcast before I was. Um, and Kiona applied to Maine Passive House not too long, maybe just before I was on the podcast. And we interviewed her and asked maybe like five questions. And she's like, Do you need more? And we were like, No, we listen to your podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's me in, in, in a nutshell for sure.
0: <laughs> there you go, ladies. If you want to get hired at a construction company, call me up. I'll do an interview with you. I, you know, pre record you uh, beforehand.
1: No pressure. <laughs> Emily, how long have you been doing the podcast?
0: Um, This is the third year I've been doing the podcast. So uh, the first year, I think I didn't start until April. The last two years, it's been a full year of podcasts. So almost one podcast every week for the whole year. Is that, is that still interesting to you? (laughs) It is fascinating to me because I will, and I don't know if this is a, being an architect, being really interested in building science or just my personality in general, but I am a longtime learner and I learn something new from everybody that comes on the podcast, whether it's their experiences, their stories, their locations in the country, things they've done. Um, so for me, I feel like it's really rewarding to do the podcast and meet new people and hear what they've done, um, or help other people too so sometimes people come on and they want to ask me a specific question or something that I'm doing and if there's anything that I can do to help other people with their businesses or architecture or building um I think that's great because it's those uh those people who are mentors to me when I was building my business that had the biggest impact on what I did so um if I can help other people I like to do that also
1: That's awesome. I I definitely, I mean, we touched on it just briefly, but I definitely think you are building a network and that is really cool.
2: How do you get people to come on the podcast? Like, do you, is it a lot of people that you already know or do you like cold email people that you think are interesting and be cool to have on? Um,
0: Generally somebody will tell me, Oh, you should have this person on, or as people who are in my network that I haven't had a chance to have on, you know, um, In fact, I think I said to Anna, I've known Jesper for a lot of years, but I had Anna on for the podcast. I should totally have him come on and talk about, you know, how he started his business and, you know, being here and and working in Maine. Um, But it's just people who are in my network. Sometimes there's a specific topic that I want to talk about or I want to cover. And so um, just like on the BS and Beer show, I'll find somebody who knows something about it. Um, you know, inquiring minds want to know, I'll reach out to, to Nikki, Kruger, uh, and talk about dehumidification like, oh, I, I want to know more about dehumidification. Like five years ago in Maine, we didn't have all of this, like temperature, air conditioning, humidity issues. People want more air conditioning. Now I don't want to create swamps in these cooler houses. Like how do you handle some of these things that we're only experiencing now in the last five years? And so I'll reach out to someone. Um, and I guess I feel really blessed with the building science community and the main community too. Um, People are always willing to do it. I mean, thus far I haven't had anybody say no to me if I've asked Um, that even my friend Bob Swinburne in Vermont has talked to some of his clients and he wants his clients to come on the podcast so they can talk about their experience which is great for other homeowners who are thinking about building or renovating to hear the experience from the homeowner's perspective and they have been lovely and they come on and they talk about their experience and working with him and they're not even my clients <laughs> but i enjoy <laughs> i enjoy then uh, talking to them and I'm really good friends with Bobs so we went to vermont a couple of weeks ago and i got to see some of their projects which was cool so um for the most part people are fun and engaging and they they like to talk about their experiences so um so far for me it is still rewarding to do this all the time i'll let you know when it gets tiring <laughs> then you, then you can take over and you can do the
1: podcast <laughs> then you'll start saying no instead <laughs> um what other hats do you wear I mean I listen to a handful of episodes and every time I listen you have a different hat on
0: (laughs) um for a while it was kind of a joke that I had a lot of acronyms after my name and I just (laughs) stopped putting all the other acronyms after my name and so I just have one registered architect that's that's um but the other certifications and things that I've done are in support of of being an architect but yeah um currently the hats that I wear are um mostly I'm an architect that's what I do 90 percent of the time I do the podcast and BS and beer which are how I try to spread the message of building science and building better and um trying to make it interesting for other people to get into the field. Cause as you guys know, we have a trades issue where we just don't have enough people getting into the field. So try to make it exciting and interesting and talk about how, how many different aspects there are. And then when I became an architect, I was always really interested in environmental and social stuff. And so I started with the lead exam back in 2006, when it was like one of the only things that you could take. And I've just keep doing them every couple of years. Um, I'm about due for another one. I'm thinking about doing something with uh, low chemical, no chemical, uh, indoor air, uh, maybe the well certification, right. Taking it to that next level with indoor environments. Um, but so I've got a lot of acronyms of different things that I've tried. And, uh, when I took the passive house course, the guy was like, why are you here? And I was like, you're going <laughs> to teach me something. I don't already know. And you know, there's just something to, there's something to learn from every certification. And I did learn a lot more about thermal bridging modeling and window installation, right? Because window details and keeping water out of buildings is like the number one things you want to do. And there are a lot of different ways to do it. And as the architect and not the builder, how to do it and then how you actually install it in practice can be two totally different things. And so um, one of the cool things about the passive house training is you can also do the hands-on version of it, which hands down I think every architect should take at some point in their career is like go actually try to install some of these things and it will be (laughs) eye-opening for what we have that idea so yeah you guys should have a passive pod you should have you know the little passive pod so for your workshops that you're doing uh through the center for Main ecology, you should do passive pods and get all the architects yes. in Maine to come take a passive pod, like learn how to install all these things. That's learn about the tapes because and no knock. I talked with Sean McStay, I think on his podcast about this, but no knock on lunch and learns, but you kind of lost my interest. If I don't actually get to like, try out the sticky membrane or see how this is installed or like I'm a dense packed walls with my community projects. Like I know how to do that. And I know homeowners who can do it. So I know it's not that hard when I go and I say, ah, this one's not quite dense back to my standards. So.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that's, I think that's invaluable. I mean, like the, we were talking about this, the way that you name your windows is directly related to your energy modeling and it makes everything so much easier for the builder. And I I really respect you as builders, you know, I really respect you for like integrating your design into the building process so much.
0: It's funny that you say that because I was just working with um, a new builder. He's building his own first high performance house because he's like, because we all do this. We try it all out at our own homes before before we do it. So he wants to, he's moving from the renovation world into the new construction world and he wants to build better houses, which I fully appreciate. So he's starting with one of my pre-designed plan sets where he gets me um, as part of the process. He can ask questions, I'll come to the job site, whatever, it's not value engineered out with traditional plan set where you could just buy a house and build from it. And the first thing he says to me is, I really liked how you labeled your windows. was <laughs> so sharp. And I was like, you're welcome. Uh, so for people who maybe haven't seen uh, my plan sets or anything, I label my windows based on the side of the house they're on. So South one, South two, South three, West one, West two. So, you know, W one, W two, instead of the traditional architecture which gives it a letter and a number but then you're always trying to figure out where window m is because it's not always shown on an elevation (laughs) where at least if if it's not shown on an elevation but it says west one and you can't find it and see it you at least know it's on the west side of the house you go to the plan you're like oh okay it's here in this bathroom that's covered by the garage in this elevation so um it's a great way for orientation and installation and it works great for your energy model because you have to put every window in separately for the energy model so that you can do shading you can do where it's located in the wall system you can um, do all the inputs and which side of the house that it's on so you can get a valid answer back from your energy model which was why i started doing it and then it translated really well to actually
1: continuing to do it on the drawings I yes absolutely that is the dream right there (laughs) it's
0: not too hard to change
1: (laughs) I did listen to you talk about um going off on your own as an architect and doing your own firm is that how I would phrase Mm it yeah um can you tell us a little bit about Doing that for yourself and like and did you did you face any barriers to entry? You know the trades can have quite a few. <laughs>
0: oh yeah. Um, and this one I took with me, and I hope no one will ever ever experience this. Um, so I started my own firm in 2009. Um, the market was really terrible. It was actually a great time to start your own business, and I offset that by both teaching classes, um, doing energy consulting, and at some point during that also doing lighting consulting. Um, and so I basically had like three jobs at all times because um, the smart thing and what I've read since then in business is like save up six months worth of income so that you can focus on it so that maybe you don't have to do that. But if you're in a position where you have to support a family or pay bills, um, it is absolutely possible to do both of them at the same time. You're just gonna work a lot in the beginning. Um, And then slowly you have to transition yourself out of taking every project on to build your portfolio to starting to say no, which is the hardest thing to do. But once you start saying no to both extra jobs and uh, work that doesn't follow what you want your mission for your business to be, you open yourself up for the possibility of taking on those great projects when they come to you. And so hopefully at that point, you've talked about it either on your website or on a podcast or somewhere where people are starting to catch on to what your philosophy is. But when I started out, uh, they don't teach you how to run a business in architecture school. So every architect, even if you don't think that you're going to start your own practice, should still take a handful of business classes in school (laughs) Um to learn about running a business it makes you a better employee but it also helps you substantially when you do decide to run your own business but I went to a, a small business administration counselor said I want to start my own business you know I don't know a lot about business because after you graduate from architecture school you have to do the equivalent of 3 years of internship before you can sit for your boards and be registered um, and there are some things that you learn about contract documents, etc. But it's it's not really a lot about how to run a business. It's just about things that you'll run into as you have an architectural business. Um, and so I went to the Small Business Administration. I'm like, help me write a plan. Like, help me do all this stuff. And the gentleman who interviewed me said, you're really young, and no one's ever going to hire you. How are you going to get people to hire you? And I held on to that for more years than I should admit that I was too young, uh, that I didn't know what I was doing because I was too young. Uh, even though I had been practicing for a while and had other people in the network. And so don't let someone else determine what your worth is because especially as architects and as builders, um, you don't want to be the person that people pick because you're the cheapest one out there. You want to be the person that they pick because you are experienced in what you know how to do and that you have a network of people when you don't know how to do it. So um, that's probably the best thing that people can learn. I mean, standardized testing and all of that, it it is what it is, but. You don't memorize those things. Like I know the parts of the code that I need to know, but when I need to look something up, I get the code book out and I look it up. I don't memorize every section of the code book. You know, I don't memorize every section of, you know, the energy books that I've done. Like when I got to go out and do a blower door test in the field, you know, I remember what the conversion is from CFM to get me to ACH, but If I want to do a longhand heat load calculation, now I teach it now, so I think it's stuck in my brain. But prior to (laughs) teaching it, I would look it up. Like, what's the formula again? Oh, yeah, those are the things that I need, right? And so you just need to know where to go for the resources. And that's what I wish I would have known a lot sooner. So I spent years reading business books, learning everything that I could, working too many jobs before. uh, I think it was about 2015 where I finally said, I'm going to stop taking on all of the extra stuff and I'm going to let room for the right things to come in. And they did. So, and that was when I really started saying like, I don't do these other things. And I know that's a really hard position when you start out, it wouldn't have been a place that I could have been in, in 2009, I had to take on other work just to grow your portfolio, grow the experience that you have. Um, But it's where you get to eventually. And so then people say, well, how'd you become a high performance architect? And I say, well, I just stopped doing all the rest of the stuff. I stopped saying I do it. I started talking about it and people who were looking that looking for that started to find me. So, Mm -hmm. so that was my barrier. I don't know. Um, and that was because I was young and maybe I took on a little bit. I was young and I was female. And so, um, I felt maybe like I couldn't ask certain questions and that like, maybe I really didn't know enough. And um, now I've just learned that it's all about the attitude and how you approach it. People will share with you how they learned how to do different things, how they've done it better all the time. And that's how we all learn and get better. And so once I sort of let go of that attitude, everything got a whole lot better.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're living it with this podcast, with BS and beer, you know, you're living that
2: philosophy. (laughs) I am. I
0: am. And sharing it and telling people you can do this too.
2: (laughs) So like, after, you know, you first heard, Oh, you're too young. You're too inexperienced. Like, how did you move forward from that? And like, what was your first kind of like major triumph or breakthrough? Um,
0: Interesting. Um, I moved forward by doing a whole bunch of other things too, at the same time, just saying like, okay, I'll, I'll build this slowly. Um, probably the first triumph was joining a networking group that was specifically about business where I learned a lot more about business and kind of how to handle the attitude. Um, to, to, you know, kind of grow the business, grow the aspect, what you, cause there's so much stuff out there that tells you like, Oh, you gotta be like all the, the CEOs and get up at five o'clock in the morning and go running and do all these things. <laughs> and like, you, 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 have to get the work done. That's what you have to do. Like at the end of the day, that's all you actually have to do. You have to get the work done and hopefully everybody's happy. Right. <laughs> like. <they're, laughs> you get the work done and you have to not have to fix it too many times, I guess I should say. (laughs) So, right. Um, but, but the, the biggest breakthrough for me was I think the first time I had a client that really had a lot of confidence in myself. Cause even after that meeting, after I explained to them what I did, what I knew how to do, he's like, you sound great. I still have no idea how somebody would decide to hire you because you're so young. Um, And, and so I had to work on building my confidence level um, and, and doing all that. So the biggest triumph was, you know, getting a client that, Really respected what I did because I was doing a bunch of consulting for somebody else, large energy engineering consulting with complicated spreadsheets that I thought I don't ever want to do another spreadsheet ever again in my whole life, like no more Excel, it shouldn't exist, <laughs> um, which isn't true because I use it a lot in business, but um And I wanted to do more design work. I thought we were missing opportunities on improvements for stuff. And they were like, well, you know, you could do that, but you have to take on all the liability. And that was the aha moment when I went, well, if I'm going to do that, why don't I just do it on my own? And then I don't have to take on the projects that, that fit within what I am doing now. I can take on the projects that I want to do. And In some cases, I'm probably lucky that the market's been steadily going back up since 2009 when I started my business. So um, even though we hit a pandemic, we didn't hit a recession in the building industry. So that's obviously if I had decided to start out on my own in 2006 and then 2008 came along, I might have a different take on it. But it's all about how you frame the problem. There's always a solution to it, whether it's like, you know, I have to teach for a little while or I have to do lighting consulting for a little while, or I have to go out and swing a hammer for a couple of years. Um, My students who take my architecture class, if they ask me for advice, I tell them to work for a builder for the summer because I think that's the best advice you can give them. And so when the market was bad in 2009, I looked at it and I went, do I want to be an architect? It's considered gainfully unemployed at this point. And I said, what does Maine need? And it followed along with what I wanted to do, which was improve both our existing housing stock. And then if we're going to build, let's build it better. Um, And so I started taking certifications and I changed the way that I practiced. And that was how I weathered
1: a recession as part of it. And so... How has the pandemic affected your business and your materials and all that good stuff?
0: <laughs> well, um, I I have to first say that I'm incredibly blessed. And I know there were a lot of people who lost jobs and struggled during the pandemic um, for the construction industry. And for me and my practice, um, it did the opposite. And I would really like to take a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> do something. Um, I worked more. We started the BS and beer show. It was the right time to do that. Uh, we still did the podcast every week. Um, and I now have seven consultants that work with me to, to get the work done. Um, I've started to put people off, um, right now, if people call me, we're not taking on any new work until the new year. Um, unfortunately our workload is just too high and you get to a point where you can't manage any more people, um, as part of the task and what you can take on. Um, it gave me the opportunity to really look at what we were doing and streamline our practice even more like what's really important, you know? How, what's the next level of this? Um, I'm happy that Maine has adopted the 2015 IECC. So they're pushing the rest of the market forward. Um, but we've already been kind of beyond that for a while. And so it was like, okay, well, if the market's coming forward, where are we going forward, right? We're pushing the next level of that. And so um, it's been tough because it's always been difficult to design to a budget as an architect that does not buy materials. Um, And so I think in 2015, I sort of set the standard where I don't do bid work. We don't put projects out to bid afterward. It never makes anyone happy. Um, Six contractors will bid it six different ways based on their interpretation and the amount of time that they spent looking at the drawings. We have to draw way more at that point if we don't have a good working relationship with the builder. Um, And so if we can bring them on during the design process, have them be paid for their input during design and have a project that everybody is happy with, it's much easier to design to a budget when you have a contractor, except in the pandemic that has been a real struggle because as you guys know, the building, uh, departments where we get our materials from wouldn't, weren't even holding pricing for a day for a while, you know? And so designing to any kind of budget when tomorrow's pricing could be 20% more than today's pricing was very frustrating. Um, and so, It became um, an interesting time to be an architect where you had value propositions, where they had to determine whether they were going to move forward and do the project or whether they were willing to spend the extra money to to really get to that, that realizing our health isn't a luxury. So some of these things we just have to do because it's how, how we stay healthy. And then there were other projects that didn't get built, which was, you know, disappointing. But what was a good budget at the start of a six month design process during the pandemic might not have been enough budget at the end for the same house. And so that has been, um, more frustrating, I would say than anything else, because, um, we work with great people who we really like and you really want to help them. And you spend every hour that you can trying to change or manipulate or move or work with the contractor. What do you know how to do? Which lumber yard can you get this from? Can we change to diagonal board sheathing instead of doing plywood? Like what, what can we do? What can we get? And so those were the best projects where we had a, a, a great team where, um, all of our homeowners have been really understanding, you know, there's that's just totally out of everybody's control, um, which is nice, but we've had a great team where we've been able to change things on the fly, but that they're asking enough questions that we're hopefully also not creating any kind of building science nightmare because we swapped something with something else because we physically couldn't get it. So, um, that's been a little crazier, but also a great learning experience because I feel like we had to go to research and development (laughs) because we had to come up with new ways to do things. So we learned, you know, we learned a lot of different practices and how you can do things differently because we had to.
2: So, yeah, I think, I mean, Anna and I are sort of, we're dealing with a very similar thing. Um, and I think, I mean, it sucks so much that lumber prices are skyrocketing, but it also really makes you think about how much waste you're producing and like maximizing every two by four that you're getting and making sure that like you're taking as few dump fronts as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of one upside to it.
1: Yeah, we also had a unique situation on this project where we're kind of working around a lot of subs at the same time that we are there. So we haven't had a dumpster up till now. And so we've been really resourceful with scrap wood, I think, you yeah. know, we really haven't hauled a lot out of there. But diagonal board sheathing. I mean, yep. <laughs> <laughs> let's get rid of plywood forever. Yeah, I Go agree.
0: Back. Let's give it to plywood forever. I did a low chemical home in Denmark. It was amazing. We didn't have a stitch of plywood. You walked into that house; it smelled like you were walking into a pine forest. Every time I walked <laughs> in, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this like it feels great." Yeah. Um, when you walk into the space, but it also uh, on one of our projects, we one couldn't get plywood at the time, but. It also was a labor shortage issue was it was a whole lot easier for them to with two people to cart um, diagonal board sheathing up onto the roof. And that's what we use for roof sheathing. And so it's like, oh, yeah, just kind of remembering that sometimes these materials are great and they do a lot for us. And at other times we forget that if you just don't have enough people you need something that's not as heavy, that's easier to work with. That's, you know, something that two people can handle versus, you know, I need X, Y, or Z. Um, and so that was, that was fun. Um, you know, and trying out wood fiber insulation on some projects and, um, John Riley put some monitors in one of my projects. So I can't wait to see how that one's performing. That's cool.
2: Yeah. What do you think about wood fiber insulation? Like I haven't, heard anything about it from someone who's used it
0: um there were definitely uh, a lot of interesting things on it they were pretty happy with it um so it's hard because cellulose because of the recycling waste or whatever sometimes it gets stuff in it that isn't newspaper and then it clogs the machines and it can be difficult to work with and you know it's dusty and whatever but what fiber is also dusty and is not a recycled material it's a first material so um so yeah i don't know uh and you have to do different things with it you know so um jury's still out i, I think <laughs> it's good I think it's good. And I think it's going to be great when timber HP hopefully can be up and running in, in Maine where it's both locally sourced, it's easy to get, um, because even first round materials, um, coming from our local forest and the local material is, you know, it's not being shipped from Chicago or wherever they're, you know, making newspaper and, who's reading newspaper anymore, right? So the exactly. newspaper isn't really newspaper. It's all the other semi paper related materials.
1: All your junk mail. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> all if like laminated and junk plastic. Mail, then we won't have
0: anything to recycle. Awesome. <laughs> and then there'd be no cellulose. And then there'd be no cellulose. Um, but taking over a factory that was something else that was empty and, you know, re- so there's a lot of pros and, uh, uh, to it. Um, I'll be interested to see how it performs, how it does with moisture management. And, um, I don't remember offhand if it was treated, what it was treated with. So most cellulose has borate in it. Um, so it'll be kind of an interesting trial, to see um we've used wood fiber boards on the exterior which have you know that's that's worked great um as an alternative to foam i like that um it's questionable depending on which ones you use whether you need to cover them with another membrane or not and it's like if we're starting to have 16 membranes at what Mm -hmm. point do we have you know too many layers and too many things um but moving away from the foam
1: stuff feels good. So among your general contractors that you like to work with, do you work with women? Any female builders or GCs? I do, I do. Um, I have not yet had the pleasure to work with
0: Heather uh, because she's out on the island. Um, Mm -hmm. um, Thus far, I haven't had anybody who wants to build out on the island and I would (laughs) defer to her and be like, what can we do out here? Um, I think (laughs) think
2: Island building is tough. you have to barge everything over it's like a nightmare
0: yeah everybody that i talked to i did one one um design that they uh for um a cottage that they had and they, they didn't end up they couldn't decide what they wanted to do if they wanted to expand the house or just build a screen porch and so we didn't build it um and it wasn't on peaks where where heather works but um but I do the GC that I do a lot of building with uh, her name is Patrice Capaletti. And so she's the GC on um, well, she built out all of solar way. So all five houses that are on solar way, and then a couple of uh, offsite houses and working on um, the nesting ground, which is her collaborative with me and our landscape architect, Carrie on the next possible development that we have kind of coming up. And I will tell you that I've worked with a lot of really uh, great men in Maine as well. One thing with Patrice is nothing is ever a problem. It's always, how do we fix this? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the solution here? Like there's no blaming, there's no whatever, you know, attitudes are important on the job site, you know, and she's kind of fun and crazy and it's, it's a good time. So, um, so I do work with her. Um, Those are probably the two, the two female builders that I, have any kind of association
1: with. Um, I'm excited with, I mean, I'm not excited about labor shortage, but with this, we can make an opportunity where there's more space for women, you know, like why not tap into women? So I'm excited yeah. to hear about anybody who's doing it right now.
0: Right, and it, it is, um, it's great. I think that it, you can open it up and just say like, on your own construction company, no problem. Be a laborer, no problem. Be an engineer, no problem. Go like, Could one of them go to school for plumbing and electrical? Those are my, um, you know, I really like that. Uh, I worked with one female electrician and I've never seen such pristine wiring in my entire life. Like it was just <laughs> it was artwork how beautiful and straight and clean it was Uh, (laughs) versus sometimes you see where they blow a hole in the two by four and you're like there's no two by four left i'm like what happened here (laughs) i don't know um and i don't know any female
1: plumbers but there's one that'd be awesome uh this is kind of tangential, but I'm thinking a lot about mechanical systems. Um, What do you do for your design process for, for locating them in your buildings? Like, is that central to, to your thought process?
0: It's critical to my thought process. So I know I'm just enough to be dangerous, which is where I like to be. (laughs) And I know enough people to help me out uh, when I need more information. Um, I'm by no means a mechanical engineer, but um, I take a lot of feedback from my clients who live in the houses, who have experienced different things and talk about the equipment. And as a hers um I know how a lot of it works too. So I often will do a homeowner follow-up education. Like, do you know the system? Do you know how it works? Do you know the maintenance schedule? Do you know who to call? If you have an issue, do you know what the X, Y, and Z works? But um, for me, it's, Really, we try to design in places for the mechanical to go because I think every tradesperson will tell you that the architect never plans enough space for the utility room or mechanicals, which is really disservice to our industry. I also worked in commercial for a couple of years when I first moved to Maine. And they do coordination drawings for all of it. So maybe that was the opportunity for my brain to connect the dots. Like it's all well and good if this design is beautiful, but if there's no way to get the plumbing from one side to the other, that's a problem. And so we've built in some things that make it easy that we don't have to figure everything out. So like maybe we'll do open web framing. Then you know you can kind of run it wherever it works, wherever it goes, where it fits. Um, but as far as mechanicals, we do a lot of ductless mini splits. Um, we'll plan actual wall sections for them to go on where it makes sense for the air to move and blow across the space. And and you know there might be two or three locations. So if a homeowner is very particular about it, um, you know, just like all. Uh, energy professionals trying to keep ducted stuff and everything out of my thermal envelope so you know if we've got a plan and a chase so that we've got a chase wall to get some places or we've got to drop a chase ceiling so that we can get lights and mechanical through a space we try to plan that all in from the very beginning it should be as easy as possible on the site afterwards with the builder so then they're not scratching their heads going uh all right you know, like if this wall lands over top of the structural for your stair, there's no way to get around that LVL that you have in the basement to get the stuff into the wall. So, you know, so I try to do coordination. I don't tell anybody how to do their own job. I'm not a mechanical engineer. I'm not a plumber and I'm not an electrician, but we try to work out at least the basics of it so that we have a really good understanding. It's also, um, Thankfully, I have a client who is an engineer uh, who bought into all this stuff, was really interested and in, was on the job site every day. And uh, when the builder would say, uh, well, this is how we always do it. He go, but that doesn't make it the right place for it to be. So like <laughs> he texts me, He said, like, they want to put the water heater in the corner. And I'm like, absolutely not. And he's like, okay, run me through why. And like, well, you want it to be as short of a hot water run as possible to your kitchen sink and to your primary bathroom. Like you don't want to stand there and waste a ton of water waiting for it to get warm or to wash your hands in the kitchen and have to wait an hour. So like you need to group all of your plumbing together and then the hot water heater needs to be as close to that as possible. Just because you have a basement doesn't mean that you just put stuff everywhere. (laughs) <laughs> that is not the answer. And so, um, you know, it, it was funny because he was like, Nope, it has to go here. You know, it, 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 was here on the plan. There was a reason why it was here on the plan. And some of that is just doing the energy work. Right. So when you, when you do any kind of energy program, you have to minimize the hot water runs. So you have to get a lot more specific about that. And that is really hard to do in the field
1: if you haven't planned for it afterwards. <laughs> so yeah, we're loving the uh, the electrical chase way these days like if it's planned in early you can you can avoid penetrating those membranes and have a pretty airtight efficient thing going for you. Mm-hmm. New favorite thing. <laughs>
0: It's pretty nice to have just, you know, it's like, this is just for, it's also great too. um, And another point to that is we're constantly talking about what happens when we renovate these projects, because everybody renovates something. Eventually they add on, they do something different, whatever. And, you know, if it's something that's simple and a chase way that you can get into and you don't dump your wood fiber insulation or your cellulose insulation all over the floor, then you're likely to keep that stuff still uh intact when you're you know replacing your kitchen or whatever so um we always try to think about what will happen to it when we take it back out of the wall (laughs) (laughs) what happens to all the scraps on on the site right so if you're using a natural wood siding you know those scraps can be burned they can be recycled they can be used for all kinds of things um if you're using a bunch of plastic and that's where does that go what does it do what's its life and you know if you spray foam a wall system like people are oh you know i don't want to renovate with cellulose it's such a mess and i'm thinking but it comes out what do you do when you have to like cut out a whole wall section that's glued together (laughs) (laughs) you hope you don't run into anything in there that maybe you shouldn't cut And maybe this is just me doing my own renovation at my house where I find all kinds of really interesting things. Like, (laughs) what was the thought process on this one? Tell us one. Um, I think everything in my house is put together with about a million four-inch nails. Just everything Everything is nailed together. My husband has decided that whoever invented flathead screws should just be exterminated time and time again from Obviously, history we are already you're like just,
2: he's like what is flathead
0: screws and uh, uh everything we had um clearly some uh homeowner do-it-yourself electrical <laughs> wiring Ooh, every mm-hmm. outlet in our house was uh backwards or not grounded um <laughs> we took out we had this um With this really interesting built-in that had a light over the built-in. It was in the ceiling, had a light over the built-in. But you had to open the door to the bottom of the built-in and put your hand in to find the light switch. So we never turned it on because it was really inconvenient. Which At first, we were just thinking, this is really inconvenient. But when we took it apart, we found that there was an eight-inch whip of wiring that came out that was just live every time we turned the light switch on in our attic.
2: Oh, my God.
0: We didn't burn our house down. Yay.
1: (laughs) My goodness.
0: So, yeah. So, so, I mean, there's definitely some, some interesting things that you find and, and something for people who are doing renovations, you will find something you don't expect.
1: What it is. (laughs) You'll find something. If you, if you try all your new ideas on your own house, Does that mean your house is like a hodgepodge of random aesthetics and such?
0: Um, Not as far as design because you can pull any design together. Um, Well, it will be pulled together when I'm done. If you want to talk (laughs) about the hodgepodge (laughs) right now. um, Okay, so you want to get into the hodgepodge. So uh, this is what happens when you do a renovation project. Uh, It gets bigger real fast. So originally we had a gas fireplace insert that was no longer through the roof um when we bought the house the gas was still on that was neat i turned it off um <laughs> so we were going to take the gas insert out and we were going to there was a wood stove on the other side of this um think frank lloyd right there was like a chimney section there was a room behind it you could go in behind where the wood stove was and where the built-in was um there's uh, it was crazy anyway um we we're just going to put a zero-clearance EPA 2021 guideline um, wood stove in and get rid of the 1970s wood stove that didn't have a gasket, whatever, and this gas fireplace. So that that was how the project started. And uh, inside this room, here's the energy auditor lives in a house from the 70s. Um, there was a two-by-four hole in the ceiling. <laughs> And um, I couldn't fix it because the electrical wiring came out, stapled to the underside of the floor joist, and went back up and in to something else. <laughs> so we fixed the electrical first before we could cover the hole in the ceiling. Um, so, so that was the plan, was to cover the hole in the ceiling, put the wood soap insert in. But we couldn't salvage a bunch of the stuff that was all nailed together once we started taking it down. So we took down the whole thing and it became an open concept, which is actually fabulous. It's a much better design. And what I would have discussed with a homeowner if I was doing a full plan, but you know, it's my own house. So So the hodgepodge then went from, okay, well, we took that out, but we bought a fireplace. So we got to put that somewhere. So we covered a window that we didn't take out yet because we'll do that when we do the siding so we (laughs) (laughs) we put in the fireplace we didn't have all the parts so we couldn't do the tile on the bottom so the bottom of the fireplace is still since march just dura rock finally got all the parts to the fireplace so we know that it works and is installed correctly and all that good stuff uh we patched the hole in the ceiling so the ceiling is um mudded and taped but not painted. Um <laughs> we ended up having to move the built-in. So then we took apart another part of the wall. So we have cabinetry that we haven't installed because I just finished painting it. So there's cabinets and it's painted, but it's not put <laughs> together yet. And then because we took out the center block. Which was good we took out because there was a cut floor joist and there was a cut truss so we headed those off and fixed them structurally. But now there's a section that doesn't have flooring, because it was all (laughs) in the middle. So I just rolled a rug out over top of it.
1: Because, the window.
0: cover the floor <laughs> because I can't put in new flooring until I take out the baseboard because like you said I'm trying to improve the house so we had to put in heat pumps before we could take out the oil boiler that was installed in the 90s that was also on its last leg so it was kind of like as these things die off so can't do flooring so I can't Snowballs. fix a hole in the floor <laughs> until I get rid of the heating system which i can't do until i put something else in to heat yeah so that's what happens so technically yes my house is currently a hodgepodge
1: (laughs) it has an end goal it will all come together (laughs) it will i had a i had a really low header over my stairs totally not code clearance. Um, mm-hmm. I popped the whole thing out. My house was a mess for like six months because I would come home from work as a carpenter and just be like, oh, I don't want to do anymore. <laughs> I don't want to get on a ladder. And so I finally got it finished. I got my dad over to like mud and tape for me and he got one coat of mud on it. And I was like, nope, I'm just going to paint it. So it looks horrendous. <laughs> 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 but I was just like, I can't live like this anymore. So one day he'll get back and he'll finish patching. But I totally hear you.
0: <laughs> and that's the one thing: give yourself grace. Um, one, as a homeowner uh, or as an architect, I would never recommend to a homeowner to do their own sheetrock because once you paint it, it always looks terrible unless you're a professional. And two, if you are going to do it, remember that you're not a professional, so you probably have to do like six coats to their three because it's going to
1: take that long to finesse it into something that looks flat right and don't give up after the first time like me it (laughs) will look better after the sixth it will look better after the sixth time (laughs) that's okay i'm the only one who has to look at it Right? You say you don't invite clients over to see your house. No, no. (laughs)
2: Architects
0: and builders should not invite clients over to see their houses unless like your whole, like if main passive house, like if your whole company came over and built you a house, I'm sure it would be beautiful. (laughs) But all the stuff that we trial at our own houses is to make sure that we do it right on everybody else's. And so it's it's definitely a work in progress. I mean, if you drove past my house, you would probably... Based on what I think people, this is me just totally conjecture, uh, based on what people I think assume an architect's house would look like, if you drove past my house, you would never go, oh, an architect lives there. And there are two reasons for that. One, if you start on the outside, you'll spend all your time after you're done working, continuing to maintain the outside of your house. And you'll never get to your interior projects. So if the outside already looks bad, start on the interior and work your way out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because the out never ends. (laughs) The out never ends. Um, And two,
0: for me, from an environmental perspective, is we are replacing things um, as it makes sense in the schedule, but also as they reach the end of their usable life. Right. So like, I don't want to add things that had a carbon impact when they got here and just rip them out because it wouldn't be what I would do to build a new house. But, you know, the, our boiler was installed in the nineties are supposed to last like 15 or 20 years. It's, it's lived its life, you know? <laughs> and, um, in order to do flooring, you know, we've, we had to do that, but we've lived here since 2018, and the carpet in my living room is bright red. <laughs> <laughs> you can just live with it. It's live a- with it. <laughs> so you know, and and nothing is ever going to be someone else's style. So, aside from doing things that are really awkward that you could never sell, like if you're going to live there for more than five years, just do what you want. So everybody else yeah. is going to change it. So yeah.
1: What is your plan when you go to the outside? Are you going to do any energy efficiency work or are you just replacing? Yes. Yes.
0: So my house is built in the seventies. There's two by fours and there's fiberglass in it, surprisingly. So there is at least something in my walls. Um, And so I'm 98% sure that the vinyl siding that's on the outside of my house is over wood siding, which has probably been rotting away because it's been covered in vinyl for the last (laughs) 30 years, probably. Um, the, we live on the water. So the salt water does degrade vinyl siding. So when we bought this house, you know, it's got some holes and stuff in it. It's windier here. It eats the vinyl. Um, and so they said, you probably have about five years on this before you're really going to need to do something about it. So my goal will be that when we take that off and we look at the condition of the wood siding, which I'm fairly certain is not in good shape because the house probably, peeled a lot because it doesn't have any kind of air barrier on it. The blower door was 8.5 AC. Uh, Yeah. Um, What I really like to do is do some kind of exterior insulation. We still have at least 50% of our windows are the original 1970s windows that are wood on the exterior. So they're rotting. They're starting to get to the, they've been painted in place. (laughs)
2: <laughs> you know <they're laughs> starting to
0: get to that point so we'll probably do that and so I'd love to do uh tilt and turn windows and exterior insulation and then strap it well I don't know if we'll strap it or if we'll do a cedar breather and put cedar shingles on that uh, we, we haven't my husband and I totally agreed on what direction the siding will go. <laughs> You got time, right? You got time. <laughs> that is not this year's project. If I can finish this year's projects this year, I'll be happy. That'll be an accomplishment. <laughs> That'll be an accomplishment. <laughs> and then
1: my husband will probably say no more projects for a while. <laughs> Did they multiply with the pandemic, the, the projects? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we,
0: could, we couldn't go anywhere. Um, normally oh, yeah. we travel. And, uh, we couldn't go anywhere. So it was like vacation time was spent doing project stuff. And then they mod- multiplied in scope and then prices kept going up. So we're like, okay, well maybe we should buy some of this stuff now before it gets even more expensive. So we, we have flooring to put in that. And the heat pumps actually just went in last week. So I now have heat pumps too. So now we can start working on the, take the boiler out project. Um, and, the heat pump uh, installer who, who does that also does ERVs, So he's putting an ERV in for me in September. So I have until September to take the boiler and the oil tank out so that I can put the ERV where they are located. <laughs> so, so yeah, so they multiplied during the pandemic
1: because we couldn't do anything else. So, uh, in your professional opinion um <laughs> what are the unsellable details that you can do to your house <laughs> i want to know some
0: carpet in the bathroom please just don't like just don't it's just no it's not a good idea um <laughs> let's see here uh there there are um like weird flow issues where the answer isn't always can I put a closet here Um, because then you end up with too many doors nowhere to put furniture and awkward rooms Um, so those are unsellable details uh, which don't happen when you're designing something um, with an architect and specifically custom curating it to their particular like hopefully we catch those I only made that mistake once and it was in the very first house I did on my own in 2009 for friends of ours. And they asked if they could put a closet in the living room side and we had plenty of space to do it. And I was like, oh yeah, except for we ran out of places to put furniture then. So now you have to have a creative furniture placement
1: in that have. I have been in houses where all the doors have to like open in a sp- specific order. So, you, specific can order, <laughs> so you can get there. Like it's like, you it's like a major
0: it does that because you couldn't get it anywhere else. Then I totally agree with that. But um Pocket doors with good hardware work just fine. They're great for space saving. You're shaking your head. You hate pocket doors. Well,
1: I mean, do you have a recommendation for hardware? Because the stuff I find is so flimsy.
0: (laughs) I will send you some stuff. Um, Yeah. randy randy williams i don't know if you follow him on uh, instagram or his blog he's northern built pro he builds out in michigan uh kindly shared some pocket door hardware information for me uh, because i was like okay some of these things don't you know they don't work out so great um and so yes so good pocket door hardware is critical um because it's great on space savings. If all the doors open in, you have to remember. Um, and that's why whenever we do our plans, we put furniture in the room so you can evaluate rooms. Can you get a bed in here on that wall and still open the door and move through the space? Can you walk around here? Because, and they're actual furniture, like not tiny miniature furniture that makes it look like you can do something in a room. It's actual sized furniture because, um, bad door placement, bad closet placement, bad window placement is really hard to overcome. Um, and so I think that makes it not sellable. And then, uh, one development that faced all their houses North. I thought that was terrible. That was a non-negotiable <laughs> people like light in their spaces. Like, yes, I don't want my driveway to be a sheet of ice all the time, but I don't want that in lieu of no light in my house at all.
2: <laughs> it's wow. funny. My, I just moved into a new house and I have a wall of windows overlooking the lake. And so we get all this sunlight. And so it like, it, you know, in the winter, it'll be nice. It'll heat, heat the house. Um, and we like keep it shaded in the summer so it doesn't overheat the house, but none of them open. They're all fixed. And so there's like no airflow. You have to open the side door and the front door to get any sort of like cross draft. And I think that's just such poor design. Like, at least the kitchen window should open for like if you The kitchen burn something. window doesn't open either. No, the kitchen window doesn't open. That's generally so like
0: non negotiable. Uh, if you burn something, then the whole window, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're you're smell your house it is forever. You're going to get a blower door. All you got to do is put your blower door
1: in and turn it on and you'll get rid of all that smoke real quickly. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. And then you can like go out and do blower doors for people to pay off your blower door.
0: Exactly. Well, you know, that's going to become a thing because with the 2015 people are going to have to have blower door testing done out. Um, What I understand about adopting it is that they could potentially do it on their own So the builder, if you have a blower door, you can do your own blower door testing, or you have a third party person come out and test it if you don't have a blower door. So, um, that's going to get, you know, get some people on board with building and doing them either. I think it's great. And at one time back when there was a lot of money coming into the state. So back in 2009, 2010, there was federal money coming into the state, I think one of Efficiency Main's programs was to help builders get blower doors, like to have blower doors to do blower door guided air sealing. Like, oh, isn't that a thing? So personally, I think every builder should just get one. <laughs> got I think blower I said test. <laughs> might have been on BS and beer. Could have been on the podcast. I said everybody should have a blower door. Like everybody should just have one. Just <laughs> have one thing
1: just yeah. put it in your house
0: i did a test yesterday <laughs> we did too so so satisfying it is so satisfying isn't it yeah it's just the the homeowner was just like that's the coolest thing i've done all day
2: <laughs>
1: we we have a, a guy in our area who does blower doors um which he hasn't had to do many be- until now probably um but he has this special ring um called the yespa ring uh, cuz <laughs> our houses are the only ones that require that size cuz none of the other ones will ever get that tight
0: <laughs> I think that was the first time that I met Yespa he was building a passive house somewhere near Bryant Pond and uh I did a blower door test for him for passive house certification and Yay. if I remember correctly I think he taped my blower door into the door frame too <laughs> <laughs>
1: Very committed.
0: <laughs> it met. It met passive house. Um, you know, and that was back in. Gosh, might have been two thousand and nine or two thousand and ten, maybe. Um. So yeah. So then that was the first time I didn't have. Did I have a yespa ring? I must have had uh, at least. I have all the extra rings too. So I mean, I you guess. must have. I must have. I. I mean, I don't know if the the, the biggest problem um that we had on that project I remember was my blower door just barely fit in the door opening it was like a really wide passive house door (laughs) and
1: the frame barely fit (laughs) so that's awesome well it's been really wonderful talking to you
0: (laughs) yeah it's been a lot of fun I'm glad you guys came on and uh hopefully I didn't bore you with all of my (laughs) crazy stories I love it um, you're welcome to come back on anytime that you want and talk about whatever you guys want. I think it's important for us to, you know, and I'm glad that I was able to interview Kiona so that you guys could listen Mm. to that beforehand, because I think one thing that is maybe keeping some women from deciding to join it is joining a crew that doesn't have any other women. Yeah. So, um, you know, hearing that you guys are doing it, um, how many how many women do you have on your team now?
1: We have 5 women building and a woman in the office. So, we're almost 50/50 at this point. Which is awesome. So Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. We we have 3 women on our job site, two men. We outnumber yeah. them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Any guidance that you guys have for other women who want to jump into the field? Um you know, to come on the podcast, uh, so, so then your the job can, can pre-interview you. <laughs> <laughs> no, she had to do it all on her own. <laughs> she did
1: it. It was all her merit. Um, I think- yeah, I think that the network that you're building Emily and, and the message that you're giving of like, just talk to people, ask for help, make co- connections. That's, that's huge. I mean, just reach out keep sending people our way.
0: (laughs) I will. I actually did. um, Someone reached out to me um, and they wanted to ask some questions similar to that, but they were thinking about getting into the construction industry. And I said, actually, the person that you should talk to is Anna or Kiona at Main Passive House. You should reach out to one of them, because if you're really thinking about getting into the construction industry, one, they'll talk to you about it, but they have direct hands-on experience. I mean, I don't swing a hammer too often anymore. Um, I'd love to, if I, if, I, as we come out of this pandemic, have, uh, more time in my schedule right now, we're still working too many <laughs> hours, so more time in my schedule to do, you know, to do some more of that. Um, I grew up doing Habitat for Humanity type stuff. And that was a great introduction for me. Um, Our high school had a wood shop, so I built a lot of stuff beforehand. My grandfather was a woodworker and a contractor. And so I had some base knowledge kind of going into architecture school on what you could do. And then we had a wood shop at architecture school and we physically built our own models and then, you know, worked over time. And so I'd love to get back to doing some of that just periodically, but, um, even if I can't do that, going to my job sites and talking to everybody on the job site, like how'd this detail work? How did this go? Like, was this impossible? You know, did you, did you, um, and I would rather they call me if they don't understand what I drew on there. So um, I have explained how to use fen trim tape more than once, <laughs> um, which is fun, but once they get it, they're like, Oh, all right. Now I get it. It totally <laughs> makes sense.
2: It only takes once. So. Yeah. Kiona, do you have advice? Um, I think that pretty much sums it up. I mean, I know that my first experience doing carpentry, I was I, I lucked out, you know, with the company that I work for. Um, and I think just like finding good people to work with is really important. Um because not every company will be as welcoming. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. And-, and and we have this network of people and we know good people to work with and work for so
0: yeah and women have to remember that men don't have any experience when they start either so you know everybody has to start at the bottom you know everybody's got to sweep floors and learn how to use tools properly and you know even if they come in and oh I know how to do that I'm sure you guys do training before you start and say this is how you properly use these tools that we have so um if we remember that it you know Any new job, no matter what you do, no matter what field you're in, uh, even if you've done it before, if you go to work for a different company, it's going to be, you know, a different. So like go into it because you can, there aren't
1: any hurdles, you know, just find the right, the right group of people. Right. And the, the question that, you know, like we hesitate to ask questions so we don't, you know, seem like we're setting ourselves back compared to our coworkers or whatever, but it's important yeah and people who will answer your questions Mm -hmm. (laughs) so
0: well it was awesome talking to both of you um good luck you you have an upcoming workshop or you just did a workshop saturday saturday
2: saturday is the first one yeah so you
0: guys have an upcoming workshop i hope that it is amazing um it was awesome to uh to be able to, and I apologize to anyone who saw my post on Instagram. I am not teaching this class. These <laughs> ladies <laughs> are. But if it got your support to support their class, oh then I'm all for it.
1: <laughs> you got us like three different specialty courses just from your Instagram post.
0: Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's the network. Yeah, it is people how to do it. So that's awesome. I'm glad that worked out. Have so much fun at your first weekend uh, with the workshop and um, that's going to be great. So thank exciting.
1: you. Thanks for chatting with us. Absolutely. Yeah, nice to hear your story. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guests, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at mottramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram mottramarch or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy.